Bible Study Magazine and the Bible Study Magazine podcast are all about helping you study the Bible with the best tools available. Often, those tools are produced by academics. Careful study of Hebrew and Greek, the original languages of Scripture, can happen outside the academy. It surely can. I know some pastors who are extremely sharp with the languages, and I know lay people who are engineers who study and use the languages to good effect in their Bible teaching at church. But every one of those exceptions proves the rule, because they all keep close ties to academic biblical studies. They read the journal articles, and they buy the books and tools that are produced by academics. Academic biblical studies has proven itself to be a source of great help for the Christian church over time. And it has proven a great help to me personally. It has its dangers too, just like non-academic study of scripture does. The effects of the fall of Adam spread everywhere. I'm going to talk today with Ben Witherington, who has been deep into the world of academic biblical studies for a long time, but who also cares to stay closely connected to the Christian church. We're going to talk about how to apply the Bible to and from academic biblical studies. He's got a new book out with Lexham Press that we'll also discuss. Glad to have you with us. Dr. Ben Witherington, it's really wonderful to have you on the second season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast. I don't think you're really coming in from Petra, though you almost fooled me. Where are you uh, joining us from today? I'm sequestered in Lexington, Kentucky, where it's uh, Seattle weather, pouring rain and lots of coffee. Well, we have Kentucky weather out here right now during the COVID-19 lockdown. It is absolutely stupendous outside. Wish you could be here. Well, I would enjoy that. It's unfortunate that uh, you sent your weather our way. I think we traded, but it really is only fair because you get such nice weather all year round, whereas our winter, it really is uh, not for the faint of heart, just rain after rain. Yeah. But we're not here to talk about the weather. People come to the Bible Study Magazine podcast to learn how to study their Bibles and how to help others study their Bibles. And you are someone who's done quite a bit to help others study their Bibles, both as you've done work for Faith Life and in writing many books. Tell us about some of the books. You can't even list them all. Tell us some of the books that you've written that have meant the most to you. Well, that would be hard to do. I mean, I I was very concerned about my own faith community, which is Methodists, because there had never been a Methodist person who had done a good commentary on every book of the New Testament, never mind the whole Bible. So a very long time ago, I set out to write good exegetical, but also practical commentaries for pastors and laypersons um, in, in my faith tradition so that they would have resources to better understand the Bible and better apply the Bible. And that went on for a long time. And along the way, I also, also wrote a bunch of monographs. But before all that, I did my doctoral dissertation on women in the New Testament, which produced three Cambridge books. And uh, so I'm a very strange person in that I never really have much had to 
ask publishers, won't you pretty please publish my work? They've come after me. And that happened recently with Lexham Press. Um, we came after you, I think, to get this recent book that people can kind of see over my shoulder here, Who God Is, Meditations on the Character of Our God. Go ahead and give us a blurb for that one, Dr. Witherington. Why should people pick up and read your book? Sure. Um, I realized not too long ago when I was doing my big volume for Cambridge called Biblical Theology, which, by the way, this year won the Book of the Year Award for Religion and Theology from the National Prose Award. Congratulations. But when I was doing that, there was something that was bothering me. Uh, and it was that when we talk about God and his character, we tend to just focus on the adjectives. God is holy, God is righteous, God is compassionate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What about the nouns? Seems to me that nouns are, generally speaking, more important indicators than adjectives. And so I decided to write this little book on five of the basic nouns that are predicated of God. God is love, God is spirit, God is one, God is life, God is light. What in the world does that mean? What should we deduce about who God is and about God's character from the nouns that are predicated of God in the Bible, both in the Old and New Testament. And uh, so this book is an exploration of that more than anything else. Now, in this second season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast, we are focusing on biblical application, how to faithfully use the teaching of the Bible to um, increase the holiness in our lives, that is to obey God more. What do we do when we pick up our eyes from the text of Scripture and go out into real life? And Dr. Witherington has been applying the Bible in the world of biblical scholarship. And I have some questions for you, Dr. Witherington, about how to apply the Bible in that world, um, about how the world of biblical scholarship affects the church's ability to apply the Word. And I want to start with something that I think is pretty practical. Anybody who has Logos Bible software or has a library of volumes, anything like they get when they get a base package, has to know that there are passages of Scripture that are hotly contested among skillful readers of Scripture, which is what biblical scholars are. How do you apply a Bible text, you personally, as a Christian, when you happen to know, because you've read the monographs, you've read the journal articles, that different scholars disagree about its meaning? Well, in the first place, I mean, I always like to say a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. So the first task before we leap to application is understanding the basic contextual meaning of any given text. That, that's job one. And the real tendency, unfortunately, due to the tyranny of the urgent and various other factors, is to let's leap to the application before we actually even understand the meaning. And that's right. all more the case when we're dealing with controversial texts or texts that are disputed or even texts that are not disputed until somebody decides to play twist that text and turns it into something it's not. I mean, I love to tell the story of one day when I was pastoring four churches, uh, a, a member of my congregation called me up 
and said, Dr. Ben, I have a problem. And I said, well, okay, Glenn Ray, what's your problem? He said, well, I don't know my Bible so well yet, but my fellow carpenter knows his King James. And I was telling him I was going to breed my hunting dogs. And he told me it says no to that in the Bible. The Bible says you shouldn't breed dogs. Oh. And I said, well, Glenn Ray, I'm pretty sure the Bible doesn't say that. But I'll look up every pee-picking reference to dog in the lexicon and get back to you. So I go through the New Testament, nothing. I'm going through the Old Testament in the Old King James 1611, and I come across this verse, thou shalt not breed with the dogs. I called up Glenn Ray. I said, Glenn Ray, I got good news, I got bad news. He says, well, tell me the good news. I said, well, those furry little four-footed tail wagon things you can read all those you want. There is this Old Testament text that in a proper context means that a true Israelite should not sexually fraternize with a foreign woman. Well, he took that all in for a minute, and then he replied, well, Dr. Ben, I'm feeling ever so much better now. My wife, Betty Sue's just from Chatham County. Oh, my. So, it's too perfect. Know, even when you're not dealing with a controversial text or a much disputed text, things can go horribly wrong if you don't study the Bible in its original context. And like so, those bookmarks that I saw one time on Amazon that drew from the book, the chapter in Genesis where Laban and Jacob are parting, and Laban basically threatens Jacob, you know, the Lord watch between me and you. But people are handing this together to, to their friends, saying, you know, the Lord will watch between us, as if this is a promise of God's protection to both of them. Exactly, exactly. So, to get back to your original question, <clears throat> here's what I would say. Um, if you are very uncertain about how to apply it, because you can't decide which of these scholars has got the right insight into the text. Well, I would just say, what's the resh to apply it? Why don't you just ruminate and meditate on the text for a while, leave it aside for a while, come back to it later, reread what the commentators are saying, and then see if you can apply it. And if you can, good. And if you can't, well, Maybe you weren't meant to apply it at this point in time with this audience in this way. And, you know, I think one of the tasks of anybody who is charged with teaching God's people or preaching to God's people is you need to know what you don't know. And, and you need to not pontificate on things you're very unsure about. And so I would say, go to those texts which you really have a strong sense you understand the meaning of, and go to town applying those. I mean, there's plenty of those in the Bible. So don't worry too much if you're confused about the meaning of this, that, or the other particularly problematic text. We've got texts like love one another earnestly from a pure heart, and that's, a, that's got a lifetime of applications in it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Simple things that people can apply right now. They don't have to, they don't have to know necessarily. If the Lord hasn't given them eyes to see and clarity on the understanding of something, they don't have to be able to apply it right now. That's a wise answer, and I appreciate it. Now, let me follow up with something that uh, somewhat more sophisticated readers of Scripture sometimes resort to. You said that we need to understand before we can apply, and I'm 100% with you. 
I certainly wouldn't want to misapply a text because I don't understand it. I want to obey what God actually said, not what I think he said. But some people have said that implied difference between meaning and significance doesn't really exist. That is, that um, if we're saying meaning is step one, significance for me is step two. Well, some people have said, if I don't understand the significance for me, of any given Bible text, and I really don't understand the meaning. They sort of collapse meaning and significance. Do you see a value in either distinguishing or collapsing meaning and significance? Well, I think you have to, because we live in the most narcissistic age in human history. It's all about me and my opinions and my interpretation of this, that, and the other. And in addition to that, I mean, narcissism is even slipped over into hermeneutics and philosophy. So, I mean, there are scholars as well as lay people who say, the text means what it means to me, period. I don't, don't, don't be bothering me with the fact that it doesn't really mean that. That's what it means to me. Well, I do not believe that meaning is in the eye of the beholder. I believe that's disrespecting God's word. It was God who, through revelation and inspiration, encoded a particular meaning in all these biblical texts. And it's not your job to dream up a meaning or read into the text something that's just not there and then say, well, that's the significance of it for me. But no doubt there's a difference between understanding the meaning and applying it to your own life, or even having God apply it to your life in a way that is totally surprising. Let me give you an example. Back in 1979, we were expecting our very first child in England. We lived in England. And um, Anne is a biologist, and we'd gone through the Lamaze classes and all that good stuff. But Weeks before Christy was due, maybe four or five weeks, she was slapped in the hospital because of high blood pressure. They were concerned about what was going on. Now, we had been reading through the book of Ezekiel together, right? This was our evening devotions together. And on August 13th, 1979, we were reading through the doom and gloom chapters of Ezekiel's prophecy. But in the middle of all that doom and gloom, there were these three lines, and I will multiply your kindred, and I will keep your sa you safe, and you will come home soon. Now, the original context of that is this is a promise to the exiles in Babylon, right? Not to me, wasn't written in the first instance to me, but it's perfectly possible for God's Holy Spirit to wake you up and turn on a light bulb and say, these particular verses have a particular relevance to your current situation. So I said to Anne, you know what? I think the baby's coming and you won't have to worry about being induced because she did not want to knock them out and drag them out situation, right? So I said, I'm just going to go home and keep my clothes on because I think God has just given us a little foreshadowing of what's about to happen. And sure enough, I went back to our house at Elvett Methodist Church in Durham, England, and we didn't have a telephone, we didn't have a car, so one of my neighbors was going to take the phone call from the hospital and drive over and pick me up. About four in the morning, the knock came on the door. There he was, and he said, 
crikey, how did you know to be dressed already? I said, we kind of got a forewarning from God that something was about to happen. He said, oh, very well, let's go to the hospital. And that was the day that Christy was born. And uh, that's not the end of the story because this is BC before cell phone, before proper computers, et cetera. This is 1979. And one year before I was born. I don't don't remember 1979. it, It was the dark ages, right? So I called up my house because Christy was born like two and a half, three weeks before she was due. And my father was at home. And I said, Dad, guess what? You're our grandfather. And Christy Ann has been born. And he was all excited. And he said, oh, drat. Mom, my mother Joyce, is in the mountains of North Carolina antiquing with a friend of hers. And sure enough, she was. And no cell phones, none of that. He said, I just, I guess I'll just have to wait till she gets back to the hotel tonight and then ring her. Well, she was wandering through an antique shop, and I am not kidding, out of the blue, the owner of the antique shop, whom she did not know, came up to her and her friend and said, well, what was it, a boy or a girl? And my, my mother did a double tap. <laughs> she went, what? Wait a minute. Well, my daughter-in-law is expecting could I use your telephone? Maybe I should call my husband and see what the heck is going on. So she calls my father, whom had just hung up from talking to me. Now, this is what John Wesley would call a singular providence of God. I mean, there were several strange things that went on on August 13th and 14th. And what that reminded me of is that God's word is a living word, And he can use it, and he can apply and give it a fresh, new significance beyond the original meaning of the text without violating the original text or context in a way that galvanizes you and appreciates how God is communicating with you in various ways. The character of the God who spoke to the Israelites through Ezekiel's prophecy is the same character of the same God, and we can expect some continuity there. Now, how would you like if I said, how do you like this formulation? The, the great majority of the Bible is not written to me, but it is written for me. That is, I'm not the original audience of any of it in one sense, but... God in his good providence knew that inspiring these words and preserving them would allow them to be used for um, making my life into the uh, image and stature of Christ. How do you like that formulation? Not to me, but for me. Well, I, I think it's for all of God's people, whether sure. in the times, New Testament times, whether in the church age. I think it's for all God's people. But of course, all God's people don't apply all the verses all the time to all of their lives, nor are they supposed to, for that matter. It's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very thankful that I can eat barbecue without guilt, by which I mean pork barbecue. Right. I mean, no problem there, right? So, it's fine if you want to say, it's not written by me, it's not written in the first instance to me, but it's certainly written for all of us right. who believe it's God's Word and are trying to live a life that's faithful to it. The most basic problem, I agree with C.S. Lewis about this, the most basic problem 
is not so much understanding what the Bible says, though that can be problematic. It's actually living out the severe demands God makes on us. I mean, really loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? I mean, who's up for that challenge all the time, every single day, right? And loving your neighbor as yourself, that's a high bar. It's incredible. It's incredible. Or even more, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Good luck with that one. Without the grace of God, it's not ever going to happen. So, you know, I think that the bigger challenge is to actually apply and live it out in a way that's faithful to God and honoring God's people. I grew up in Awana clubs, singing the songs and, most importantly, memorizing the verses. Awana is almost the sole reason I have so many verses of scripture hidden in my own heart. I want to mention to you Awana's new Bright, B-R-I-T-E, digital weekend curriculum. Bright was put together to prepare kids to lead the church of 2050 and, more importantly, to love Jesus for their entire lives. Bright was carefully designed by Awana with flexibility, scalability, and adaptability in mind. Their team of discipleship thought leaders and practitioners has crafted a set of resources to fit your large group and small group model or a Sunday school and children's church model. Plus, since it's entirely digital, you can download Bright onto your tablet, your smartphone, or your laptop. You can share the files with your leaders and volunteers, and you can print lessons for ease of use. Downloadable elementary and student materials include fun videos, leader training, and flexible lessons. Want to see how Bright fits your weekend space? Visit resilientdisciples.com forward slash curriculum to learn more, because today's kids are the bright future of the church. Now, uh, let me move back into talking some more about biblical scholarship. And, uh, you know, I am living in the world of academic biblical studies pretty much all the time when I'm not doing something related to church work. And let me just say, I like the warmth with which you speak of personal faith and a Bible relevant to the questions of a dog breeder in, uh, presuming, the hills of Kentucky somewhere, North Carolina. Um, Both of those things have to come together. But let's talk about biblical scholarship a little bit more. There was a controversy a couple months back. I'm going to leave some of the details vague because I'm not trying to pick on any individual people. Uh, Between Christian biblical scholars and non-Christian biblical scholars, people who study the Bible for a living, but, you know, don't believe it. It is inspired by God and, you know, say so openly. And they were arguing on social media, which is kind of redundant to say, arguing on social media. And they were arguing over what counts as a good biblical scholar. What do you think makes a good biblical scholar? How would you define those three separate things? Well, one of the things that certainly I see in the Guild, because I spend a lot of time at SBL meetings and SNTS meetings and endless meetings, you know. And sometimes when you get seven scholars in a room, you're going to eight, get eight opinions on the same thing. But in regard to this particular matter, what I have said to those who come at the Bible from a position of extreme skepticism um, is, I don't think that justification by doubt is the same thing as critical thinking about the Bible. Let me say that again. I do not think that justification by doubt 
makes you a good scholar, makes you a good critical scholar. I think that critical thinking is what is required of people who have some faith, no faith, uh, are even antagonistic or are full-fledged believers when they approach the Bible. We all need to do critical thinking, uh, analyzing the text, understanding the meaning of the text, and whether we think it's true or false is irrelevant. I mean, I have learned much from scholars who are not believers at all. Some of my best friends in the guild are, in fact, secular Jews who even have a doubt, even have doubts there really is a God, right? But but some of their insights into the meaning of the text are very helpful and right on target. And so it's not the case that you have to be a person of faith to understand the meaning of the text. You certainly have to be a believer in the Bible to understand its relevance and current significance for your own life or other people's lives. So what happens in the academy, of course, is most of the time we don't get beyond arguing about what is the meaning of the text in its original context. That, that's about as far as You don't get to significance never. application. Almost never. And if you do, people think, well, that's quaint. <laughs> you know, that's, then that's sweet. Um, what I say about all of that is that you have to come to the text with an open mind. Now, what I find the most odd is the people who spend the most time talking about being open-minded about reading the Bible and understanding the Bible are often the most fundamentalist and closed-minded people about its possibility of being true or being applicable for today. This I find very strange. Fundamentalism has to do with a mindset. It doesn't have to do with a particular point in the theological spectrum at the end of the day. So, number one rule, good critical thinking, discerning the meaning of the text. And if the conversation doesn't go beyond that, well, that's okay, but at least you've gotten at the meaning of the text. You remind me of a quote from Ian Proven up at Regent in uh, one of his commentaries on the books of Kings, where he says that the the critical, you know, biblical studies guild noisily ejects religious assumptions out the front door and quietly opens the back door for other faith assumptions that just happen to come, you know, from outside the Christian religion that still nonetheless guide what they're saying. Yeah, as you were talking about um, SBL papers, you know, you're 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 uh, engaging in academic biblical studies, and people think it's quaint to apply the Bible. Um, I'm thinking about you know those little rooms that people meet in, and what would it be like if you gave an invitation afterward, have people come forward and acknowledge that this is the word of the living God. It, it just doesn't fit. They've set up that whole world in SBL to push away any claim like that. They focus so relentlessly on meaning, you're not allowed by the rules of the guild to get to significance. Do you think that's accurate? Well, I would say that there's a huge spectrum of people involved in the SBL. And uh, for example, the IBR seminars, you're certainly gonna get there. In the, sure. In the ETS seminars, you're for sure gonna get there as well. But but one of the things that has struck me the most is, I mean, um, I've done quite a lot of events for New Orleans Baptist Seminary, and this involves scholars from 
widely divergent perspectives about the Bible on important topics. And one year we did miracles. And there was this particular scholar who is very famous, has sold a zillion books, who is agnostic at best. And we were discussing miracles in the Bible. And of course, my question was, which view is more open-minded and which is more closed-minded? The view that says miracles just don't happen or the view that says, well, maybe they do happen. Shouldn't we consider the evidence first, right? And he said, with an exclamation point, miracles didn't happen and don't happen because they can't happen. And I said, well, that puts the dog back in dogmatism. How exactly do you know that? Are you omniscient? And it, it just struck me very profoundly that here was a person who had sort of dug his feet in and taken a dogmatic stance about something he is not omniscient on. And, and so it's, it's not even remotely open-minded. And then, of course, the next statement out of his mouth is, well, you're not a critical thinker. You're not a good scholar uh, because you refuse to accept the basic philosophical presuppositions of modernity when we approach ancient history. Now, my response to that was, I can take or leave various philosophical uh, presuppositions since the Enlightenment, because some of them are true and some of them are false, and we need to do critical thinking about modernity, not just antiquity. Thank you very much. Right. Yeah, you're implicitly answering the question that I asked earlier when I asked, what is a good biblical scholar? You're, you're saying, I'm not going to accept the definition that says you have to accept modernism, the assumptions uh, that arise out of the Enlightenment, uh, a rationalism which would deny the existence of miracles and even the supernatural, or at least our access to the supernatural. That's not what's required to be a good biblical scholar. And I, I had a question for you that involved um, modernism and postmodernism. And it, I was going to say to you this very thing, the, the modern academy is still so influenced by modernism in the Biblical Studies Guild that people do often feel satisfied to end the hermeneutical process, the process of interpreting the Bible with description rather than moving to application or proclamation. And, and, and maybe the closest they would come is to describe the historic reception or application of a text within faith communities. When, in your own scholarly work, do you feel satisfied to stop with description or the level of meaning? And when do you feel, in scholarly work, that it's right to move on to significance or application? Well, in my socio-rhetorical commentaries, they're divided up in, first, dealing with the original language text, secondly, interpreting the original language text. If there are big issues, theological, ethical, text-critical, whatever they may be, they get a closer look section where you can go into more detail if you need to. And then there's a bridging the horizons text at the end of each section of the commentary. And that's when you get down to cases to do application and dealing with the issue of significance. So I'm trying to take people through the whole hermeneutical circle from start to finish in the commentaries that I do. And I think that's perfectly appropriate uh, when you're writing commentaries for all kinds of audiences. 
Uh, most recently, I did a commentary with my friend A.J. Levine, who is a Jewish New Testament scholar from Vanderbilt, on the Gospel of Luke. It's the first ever commentary on a Christian gospel by a Jew and a Christian together. So really quite interesting. And we were both in agreement. Let's see if we can actually do the whole hermeneutical circle and get to application or significance. Well, we did. And I have to say, the significance she saw for her community and her circle of folks was often different from mine. But that was okay because she was trying to go the whole nine yards with the process, whether we agreed or disagreed. It was an excellent inter, uh, interaction. And we went back and forth and by back and forth. And eventually, we turned the commentary into a very different kind of commentary where I did the even chapters, she did the odd chapters, and then we kibitzed about each other's chapters. We dialogued about it, and the dialogue is in the, in the commentary itself. So it's a dialogical commentary between two distinct and recognizable voices who have meditated on this text for donkey's years and, and really often we would agree and often we would disagree about the meaning or the application of the text. But it was a great conversation. And I came away from that encouraged because I think it's possible just because of the nature of the word of God that you can even get through to people who are profoundly secular or agnostic or not very open to Christian faith if you just are honest about the text and come to some kind of agreement about what the text means, and then let the text do its own work on the person. I had an experience like that too, not too long ago. I'll keep the details vague, but I was editing commentary work by somebody who, you know, you really could hardly pick someone at a further pole from me theologically. And when I first found out that I'd be doing this, I was, you know, a little bit afraid, what am I going to encounter? But the nature of the commentary was such that it was so focused on accurate description, in this case of a narrative piece of the New Testament, that um, I found we had near complete agreement as to how we would describe it. And I actually came away with some really genuine respect for this person who's across several aisles from me that I do think are important. I'm not a relativist. You said something like this in your book, uh, Who is God, that I just got done reading. Um, I'm not a relativist. I'm not saying everything that this individual says about the Bible is right. But when we focus really intently on what does this text say, we can come out with a great deal of agreement. And I find myself praying that this Bible text, so this, this was, as far as I knew, a non-Christian. Uh, I was praying that this Bible text would have its intended impact on this person's life. And, and sometimes that happens. And why exactly are we surprised that God's Word or Spirit can actually do that? Right, as if we deserve to understand the Bible and to have our eyes opened, as if it isn't any more uh, a miracle of God's grace that we as believers can understand. Now, let me, let me make it a little personal here. Uh, again, I like the warm and personal way you talk about Bible study. This is not a, an ivory tower merely uh, pursuit. It is that too, but it gets down to real life. So, talk to me about a time when your scholarly work change the way you used or applied a given passage of Scripture to your life? Well, um, my wife and I have gone through some really hard times. Our 
oldest child died suddenly eight years ago you know, of a pulmonary embolism completely unexpectedly. Oh. And, um, you know, people, well-meaning people, would come to us and, you know, say, we're sorry for your lost loved one. And I would say, she's not lost. I know right where to find her. She's with Jesus. Exactly. You know, they don't know, they don't know what to say. And they don't really, ha they mean well. So what you have to do is interpret whatever they say in love. Because they mean it well. You know, they mean well. And so sometimes when I was listening to them, I realized the significance of what they are doing is far more important than the actual meaning of their words. And, and that really gave me pause, right? They could get the meaning wrong and... <laughs> And nonetheless, do the bigger thing of loving their neighbor as themselves, right? And that really reached me uh, because I'm such a person who is historically grounded. I, I, I'm big on the history of the text and the archaeology of the text and the original meaning of the text and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we're part of a living faith community. So those experiences shook me up enough to make me realize I need to be open to listening to what the Spirit is saying now through the body of Christ and not just burying my head in the text. And because God uses all kinds of persons to say all kinds of things to different people at different times, and thank goodness that he does, uh, he doesn't just speak to us through his word. He speaks to us through his body, um, who the Spirit prompts to say all kinds of things. And so, I mean, that's one of the things that's happened. But I'll give you one other example. I spent a lot of time trying to understand who in the world is the beloved disciple in the fourth gospel. Yes, I know the traditional answer is it's John, son of Zebedee. I think that's extremely unlikely because there are no Zebedee stories in the fourth gospel. And if it was the personal testimony of the Zebedees, we would expect the call of the Zebedees and Mount Transfiguration story. And I was there when Jairus' daughter was raised and all that sort of stuff. None of those stories are in the gospel of John at all. Well, the light came on for me when I realized that the very first place in the Gospel of John and John 11 that we hear about someone that Jesus deeply loved is Lazarus. The, the sisters of Lazarus send an urgent message to Jesus, an SOS saying, the one whom you love is ill. Exactly. And it's only after that that we have the use of the phrase, the beloved disciple, or even the other disciple, i.e. other than Peter. And, and then it dawned on me, is it possible that what's really going on in this gospel, is it possible that 
This gospel is written through resurrection eyes. That is, the person who is the real eyewitness here is looking at the whole story because he personally has been raised from the dead and can relate to the truth about Jesus being raised from the dead intimately. In his own being, he can do that. So when the beloved disciple goes to the empty tomb and Peter goes in and scratches his head and says, grave clothes, what happened? And the beloved disciple looks in and he believes, Hmm. even though it adds, for they had not yet understood from Scripture he had to rise from the dead. Well, he's believing on the basis of his own experience. So it occurred to me, the beloved disciple is Lazarus. It's Lazarus, the one whom Jesus loved. And what happened is that after he passed away, according to John 21, Somebody named John, John of Patmos, was part of the Ephesus church, came back and edited the memoirs of the beloved disciple. And so we actually have three gospels based on the Galilean ministry of Jesus and one gospel from the perspective of a Judean disciple who was the leader of the Judean disciples. And praise the Lord, viva la difference, you know. Well, now, how did that affect me personally? I thought, It's possible to get fresh insights into this biblical text of what God originally intended and what he's trying to tell us, even 2,000 years after 2,000 years of interpretation, fresh light can break forth from this material because it's the word of God. And it actually helps you get back to the actual intended original meaning of the text. I wanna, Praise the Lord. And for me, that resolved all kinds of problems. Hmm. It resolved all kinds of problems. I'll give you just two examples. When Peter and the beloved disciple went to Caiaphas' house, why in the world did the beloved disciple have an all-access pass into Caiaphas' house? Well, because they knew him, and they had actually attended his funeral in the previous chapter, right? Or, even more poignantly, he's the only male disciple at the foot of the cross. But that presents a problem if he's one of the 12, because the synoptics are very clear that none of the 12 were there all fled. to see Jesus die on the cross. Not a problem. Not, not a problem if he's a Judean disciple whom Jesus loved. And, and then final, the final bit, the, the clinching bit was, Jesus bequeaths his mother to the beloved disciple, and it says, and he took her into his own home. This is not somewhere back in Galilee. This is in Bethany. So when you turn the page to Acts and you find Mary in the upper room praying with the disciples, Acts 1.14, well, guess what? She never left Jerusalem because she was staying with the beloved disciple. And I thought, sometimes when you do your Sherlock Holmes detective work, you can discover something that sheds all kinds of light on the truth of the Bible, resolves apparent contradictions, and really gives you an opportunity to see the New Testament through resurrection eyes. Praise God. That, that's biblical scholarship at its best. The most attentive and def- detailed, careful reading that comes out with treasures. I very much appreciate that. Now, I, I want to go back to something you said a little earlier. You kind of gave a 
a two-part answer to my previous question. And that second part had another two parts, and it's all wonderful stuff. And I don't want to lose the first part of that answer you gave. You talked about how the Spirit can speak, you know, through the body of Christ. Um, uh, That body is seeing things, you know, perhaps that are fresh, like what you were just describing. Nonetheless, you wouldn't be in biblical scholarship, and I'm not involved in it, unless we had some uh, some concern and some re- recognition of the fact that there are readings that are out of bounds. There is a way to contradict the text and a way that might make Jesus come to one of us or to a group of us and say, have you not read? You know, he says that like five times in the Gospels. I've reflected on that often. Um, one of my efforts to try to show as much grace to people as possible while maintaining controls has been to use thoughts from Augustine and Spurgeon that I want to bounce off of you, okay? Augustine says in his, uh, I believe it's in On Christian Doctrine, not totally sure about that. He says, basically, as long as your application of Scripture, your interpretation, winds up in love of neighbor and love of God, you're not really wrong. And then Spurgeon said, you know, I'm taking the most direct path to Christ that I can from any passage. And sometimes if that means I have to go off the path and go through the fields, well, that's not so bad. I've thought, okay, if I can keep love of God and neighbor and the honor of Christ as the ultimate goals of my interpretation, and if I see people doing that, even if I think to myself, ah, they're not quite getting that right because they don't understand how the Greek works here, or even the English, like I've heard many messages on the root of bitterness springing up, that's the way the King James puts it, so people talk about that passage as if it's about bitterness. But even though I don't think the passage is about that, they get to a place where the point is love of neighbor. You shouldn't be bitter against your neighbor. And using Spurgeon, using Augustine, I take a step back and I say, okay, if they ask for my opinion, I'll tell them, you know, I don't think that's what root of bitterness means, but I'm not going to go after them. They weren't wrong in the, uh, you know, that very worst sense that would actually make me want to have to go out and say something. How does that strike you? Well, I, you know, I think in terms of placing the emphasis on the right syllable, <laughs> I think that's good. I think that's good. But what I was going to say in addition was that the Holy Spirit is called by Jesus in the Gospel of John, the Paracletos. Comes along. Indeed, he's called the other Paracletos. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and really the fundamental meaning of that is counselor or agent. It actually has a legal significance, even though the King James originally translated that as comforter. Comforter. And, and so what I would gather from John 14 through 17 is that the Holy Spirit is not going to say anything to us that does not comport with what Jesus or other inspired writers of the Bible have already said. I mean, the Holy Spirit is not going to say, you need to give me a million dollars so I can build a mansion, right? Not not after the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says you need to be satisfied with food, shelter, and clothing. That's not, that's just not in the Bible. That's out of bounds. That contradicts the Bible. Right. Yeah, it contradicts the lifestyle that Jesus called us to, to live, not a lifestyle of conspicuous consumption. Thank you very much. So. Uh, you know, I, I do believe that, of course, the Holy Spirit still speaks to us today, but in a way that comports with the basic emphases of the Bible, like the two that you just mentioned. Absolutely. It, it is so much about love. And even when they get 
of the meaning of a particular text wrong? Well, that's okay as long as the larger significance of what they're saying does comport with the fundamental realities of what we're called to in the Bible. Um, I'll give you another example. Recently here in Kentucky, a man who is the Secretary of State has decided to sue the governor because he was asking houses of worship not to meet in person here in Kentucky. Now, Governor Brashear is a devout Baptist, okay? And this man is also a devout Christian. And for me, the immediate problem with that whole deal is Paul six. yeah, Christians shouldn't be taking Christians to court, especially not over a matter when, we're, we're, when people are dying from a pandemic. This is just wrong in seven languages, right? They should resolve their differences quietly and sort that matter out. It's, it's not all about rights. It's about responsibilities as a Christian. And come let us reason together and sort this out without doing litigation. And, so you, you know, there is a case where I would like the boundaries of the text to be clear to the person who's doing the suing. You shouldn't be doing this. You can't have the Spirit saying to this po- politician, you know, actually, this passage doesn't apply to you. You go do what you want to do. <laughs> That wouldn't comport with what the Spirit said very clearly in 1 Corinthians 6. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think there is a time and a place to say, this is definitely out of bounds. Stop in the name of love, right? <laughs> but, but there's also a time where people are not intentionally trying to twist the text, but they're trying to get at the larger importance and significance of communicating love or faith or mercy or compassion to you where you don't feel like you've got to sort of give them five lessons on why your exegesis is bad. I just had to say thank you to you for uh, when you said stop in the name of love, being the first person to quote the Supremes on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. That's much appreciated. Well, I'm I'm an old rock and roller. I just have to quote something you wrote and say amen, and then move to this last question. You wrote, English is a living language. You wrote this in your book about biblical scholarship, by the way, which I read a couple years back and appreciate it. English is a living language, and the problem with using old translations from the early 17th century is that the language has moved on and words and phrases have changed meaning over time. I've spent about the last three years of my life working on and proving that very thing. I just have to say amen to that and then go to the question. Here's the question. You wrote in that same book, what sort of scholar do you want to be? And we're kind of trying to bring this back to uh, applying the Bible. Um, you said, do you want to be a scholar who's mainly capable of talking to other scholars in your field? Or do you feel called to a broader ministry, writing for lay people and students, as well as scholars? You said you have personally tried to engage all those levels of writing, but it takes skill and uh, to write with clarity at all those levels. And you said, blessed are those who know both the possibilities and the limitations of their writing gifts and calling. So, I I just want to ask you, for the sake of our listeners, many of whom are pastors, many of whom are Bible teachers of other kinds, apply the Bible's talk about spiritual gifts to this comment of yours. How can someone know whether he or she has the gifts necessary to speak to to any of these groups that you've mentioned? Well, I think you have to listen to the voices of the people 
that you keep speaking to. There was a day in my own life when the president of Asbury Seminary, who at that time was Maxie Dunham, came to me and he put his hands on my shoulders and said, Ben, do you know what your best gift is? And I said, no, Maxie, I'm not sure, but I think you're going to tell me. And he says, you have the ability to distill even complex biblical things down to any level of discourse. And many scholars can't do that. And I thought about that. And I would never have thought, I had never even mused about, that's my best gift at all. But I realized there was some truth in what he was saying. And so I would simply say, listen to the reaction of the people who read your books, who hear you teach or preach. Listen intently and let them tell you what your best gifts are and how you're best suited to help the body of Christ grow and discern and become more biblically literate. And I think you will that will pay endless dividends. I got a letter just yesterday from a student that I had in 2006, so 14 years ago. And he said, I'm a pastor. I'm reading your social rhetorical commentaries. He said, what I most appreciate is that you interact with other excellent commentaries in your commentary and boil things down to a level where I can preach it or teach it and my people can actually understand it. So he sent me this handwritten note thanking me, even though I hadn't seen him in 14 years, and he was doing his due diligence as a pastor to read and study the Word of God and try to be a faithful exponent of it. Well, that's a response that tells me, looks like maybe those commentaries have hit the target. Praise God. You know, there are these passages in the New Testament. Ephesians 4 says that Christ has given teachers to his church. And 1 Timothy 3, I think it is, says that those teachers or elders have to be able to teach. In the old King James, it said apt to teach. Um, if I'm going to try to apply those passages, I can use the wisdom that you've just provided, which is simply looking out at the sheep, the body of Christ that I'm supposed to be called to serve, and asking, is the stuff that I'm doing actually demonstrating that I'm bringing value to these sheep? And praise the Lord when He deigns to use us to do that very thing. Dr. Witherington, thank you for a stimulating conversation about applying biblical scholarship, about being a biblical scholar, about applying the, applying the Bible while using the gifts of scholars. Thank you very much for your time during this lockdown crisis. You are most welcome, and I will leave you with this. God can write straight with a crooked stick. If he can even use Balaam's donkey to proclaim his truth, he can use any and all of us. But the question is, have, in fact, you whittled the stick to a point so it's a more useful prod that God can use? Amen. Praise God. Good Kentucky wisdom right there. I love it. Thank you again, Dr. Witherington. You're welcome.
Thanks for joining us for the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Our audio video technicians are Jack Underwood and Brandon Van Beek. I'm your host, Mark Ward, editor-in-chief of Faith Life's Bible Study Magazine. BSM has always existed in the place I myself like to live, right on the border as a bridge between academic biblical studies and the individual lay student of the Bible within a local church or the pastoral student. If that's you, if you need and want that bridge, then subscribe to the Bible Study Magazine podcast or to the magazine itself. We're just here to help you study the Bible with the best tools available.